0: Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? Good. All right. Um, let me make sure I'm on. This is all on me, by the way. I wouldn't let them mic check me before. Um, it's actually the, the part of the sermon I'm the most scared about is randomly talking in front of strangers when I have nothing to say. Um. So, let me uh, introduce myself real quick. My name's Dan, um, occasional preacher here uh, at the Oaks. I want to welcome anybody who's, who's visiting, and even if you're not visiting, you are welcome. Welcome to uh, church this morning. It's an honor um, uh, to be up here and have the opportunity to share God's Word. Um, now, before we get down to Bible business, I do have uh, something that I need to address, a disturbing trend that I was alerted to after my last sermon. Apparently, there were people who will remain nameless, placing bets on when my first Lord of the Rings reference (laughs) would come out in my sermon. Gambling people in church, really? Shame. But maybe the most shameful part was that the over-under on the first reference was five minutes. Of a 35-minute sermon, five minutes. No, the worst part was that the um, the under hit. (laughs) So, I took this in as feedback. I did some reflection. Should I change? Maybe I need to read another book. (laughs) Am I going to this particular well too often? Nah, <laughs> no, I'm doubling down. Um, today's over under is going to be a little more challenging. I'm placing it at 17 minutes. Um, so, amongst yourselves, place your bets. Uh, but I want you to know that I'm working to be a little less overt. Uh, I'm going to make my references a little more layered, maybe a barium a little bit deeper. Um, so, I'm guessing that many of you won't pick up today's Tolkien reference. Um, But if you do, um, you know, let me know. But for the rest of you guys, good luck. Um, So with that aside, let's go on to God's Word. Um, We're going to open God's Word today. We're going to be in John chapter 6. We're continuing in on a sermon series on the seven signs of Jesus's divinity that we see in the book of John. And today, because we are an outstanding group of go-getters... We're not going to tackle one sign. No, baby, we're going to tackle two signs and more. Um, both of these signs, both the miracles we'll be uh, talking about today are, are extremely famous ones. We're going to talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000, and we're going to talk about Jesus walking on water. Um, and then we're going to dive into some like intriguing further discussion found in John chapter 6. So the way we're going to tackle this, you may have noticed we didn't do a reading up front. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read pieces at a time, pause, give some commentary, and then we'll, we'll go on. So we're going to begin at the beginning of John with the feeding of the 5,000. So the, verses, the, the first part should be up on the screen. This is John chapter 6, um, verses 1 through 4. It reads, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Okay, so this is sort of the setup to the miracle, and John places this miracle some time after um, the healing at Bethesda, which is the, um, the miracle at the Pool of Bethesda that Pastor Matt talked about last week. Um, the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they place it directly after the, um, the death of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist dies. He's, he's killed by Herod. And upon hearing this news, Jesus, he seeks solitude. He wants to be alone, and he kind of retreats. This was a close friend of his. Um, and he, he goes to be alone. But a crowd of people, people who have witnessed healings like the one at Bethesda and, and many others, uh, most likely, they pursue him out into the wilderness. Now when I have a hard day, I'm very Christ-like in that I also like to retreat. Um, I like to retreat, but the, uh, the crowds of my life, my children, <laughs> they will also often find me um, of course, they're not asking for healing, they're asking for granola bars, uh, chicken nuggets. Uh, they want me to print out coloring pages, or they just want to talk about the latest Fortnite skin. Um, and my reaction on those days is something along the lines of, hey, daddy is, is really tired. Uh, can you just go play with the dog? Um <laughs> But I want us to see, and I think it's noteworthy, that that's not how Jesus responds here. Even at his weariest, Jesus never runs low on compassion for those who are seeking him. You know, Matthew writes that when he saw the crowd, Jesus was moved with compassion and he started healing them. He started healing their illnesses. Luke tells us that when he saw this crowd approaching him, he welcomed them, he healed them, and he started teaching them about the kingdom of God. And I think this is an excellent place for us to start because it causes us to reflect on the depth of Jesus' compassion. And this reflection is a really healthy place for us to begin this morning. You know, all of us have earthly parents. We were raised by parents or grandparents or somebody raised us. And whether they were good or flawed or most likely somewhere in between, they had bad days. We call them like don't bother mommy days (laughs) or don't bother dad days. Um, And that imprints on us. You know, just growing up in that environment is going to affect you. And it, it, it leaves a mark on us. And it can shade how we view God. And so it might cause us to perhaps hesitate for a moment before we bring our little problems before God because we think we might catch him on a bad day or we think that we might catch God in a bad mood or maybe he'll be fed up with us and he'll say, hey, why don't you go play with the dog? But what we're learning here is that we don't need to hold back from approaching Jesus. If we hold back from approaching Jesus, we're not being smart. We're not being selfless. We're underestimating Jesus' capacity for compassion. I like this quote from Spurgeon. He writes that Jesus' mercies are not single spies. But battalions of compassion. And Jesus doesn't have just a little mercy for you, He has an army of compassion for you. How does that sit with you? That's the first question I want you to kind of wrestle with this morning. How does that sit with you that Jesus has a battalion of compassion for you? Does it make you feel more comfortable? Approaching him, does it make him more approachable? Does it make you feel a little safer going to him with the problems of your life? I also want to note, as we're still looking at this setup here, that John, he makes a special point of letting us know that this happens on the Passover. Most scholars, they look at this and they say, this is a clue for us that we should view this miracle in light of the original Passover and then the Exodus that we read about immediately after. And in that story, you might remember, there's a part of that story where God provides manna, and manna is this bread from heaven for his people who are wandering in the wilderness. And so the connection there for us to make is that Jesus is about to provide bread for his people who are in the wilderness. Okay, we're going to keep moving along. So moving on to verses 5 through 8, it reads, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming to him, he said to Philip, Where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? I like that John includes these interactions between Jesus and Philip and Andrew. Andrew. And the first question that I have, especially when we're thinking about Jesus' interaction with Philip, is why does he ask him this question? Why why present him with an impossible scenario? And John actually lets us know. He says, well, this was to test him. But why? Why is he testing him? Now, Jesus' motivations are probably to us as unfathomable at the depth of his compassion. But one of the key aims, this is a, an important thing to understand about all of chapter 6. Everything we see in here, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, and the discussion discussion afterwards, one of the, the, the key aims of Jesus is to grow his disciples' faith. He wants... To grow, he wants to push them into growth. Um, sometimes, when my wife Brittany is not home, the kids will come up to me and say, "Hey, what are we having for dinner?" And I like to respond with something like, "Well, what are you making?" Yeah. Uh, which usually elicits a pretty, like you know, like the, the, the look on their faces is, is is pretty pretty funny. It's it's enjoyable, um, but you can only you know uh, play that game so many times before they learned that, you know what, dad can actually order a mean pizza. Um, and certainly Philip, who's been following around Jesus for some time, he knows that Jesus is a miracle worker. He knows that he can do some really cool things. But does he know Jesus as God? Has he made the connection, like John is trying to make the connection for us, that Jesus is a God, like the God of Exodus, who can feed his people in the wilderness. I think by testing him, by testing Philip, what he's doing is he's pushing on his faith. And he's trying to get him to have a greater understanding of who he is and to open up his creativity about his power and what he can do. Now, if Jesus does this for Philip, wouldn't it follow that he would do it for us? As fellow followers of Jesus, we should expect our faith to be pushed and to be tested. And so one of our questions that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we be more attentive the teachable moments, like this was for Phelps, for the teachable moments that Jesus presents in our lives? How is God pushing into your faith? How is he growing you to be more creative, to be more expansive, to be more imaginative about the depths of his power? Now, I think Jesus' interaction with Andrew is actually kind of comical because He's like, hey, I know a boy with five loaves and, and two fish. and he, Then he expresses some doubt that that could be enough. And it's like, yeah, do you think? Maybe that's not enough. Maybe a grocery bag full of food isn't going to get the job done here. Um, now, why does this boy have this grocery bag full of food? Who knows? Boys often do unexplainable things. Um, I like to think that he had a little side hustle and he was selling fish sammies to the crowd. Um, I don't know doesn't say. But what we do know is that you can't feed a crowd that was probably the size of an average Cincinnati Reds game with a grocery bag full of food. But despite the doubt that Andrew kind of um, expresses, we have to appreciate one thing. And that is he directs his resources towards Jesus. And he says, it's not much, but here's what we got. And this is a great life lesson for us. Success in life is less about your resources, it's less about your capabilities, and it's more about the direction that you're pointing. Who you are handing it to. And that means that the means that God uses to accomplish his, his tasks in the world, the means that he uses to provide for us, they are almost always going to look insufficient they're almost always going to look not up to the task. The disproportion will almost always look enormous. I want to share this quote that I read um, from N.T. Wright. He says, you know, Philip doesn't know what to do. Andrew doesn't either, but he brings the boy and his bread and fish to Jesus' attention. The point is obvious, but perhaps we need to be reminded of it. So often we find we ourselves have no idea what to do, but the starting point is always to bring what is there to the attention of Jesus. You can never tell what he's going to do with it, though part of the Christian faith is the expectation that he will do something we hadn't thought of, something new and creative. I'm guessing that no one in here has been asked to feed a crowd, at least not of this size, right? But I am sure that some of you have faced seemingly impossible circumstances, and my guess is more than one of you is probably in a situation like that right now. There are things in your life that feel impossible, and it feels like you're trying to accomplish something with five loaves and two fish. What do you do with that? What do you do with the uncertainty that that creates, with the anxiety of feeling like you don't have enough? Does it scare you into retreating? Does it scare you into holding back? Or, maybe like Andrew, do you have a curiosity of what might happen if you handed a little bit that you have over into Jesus. What would happen if you put that in Jesus' hands? All right, we're, we're going to keep moving on. We're on uh, verses 10 through 15. So Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we actually got this to the miracle part, the, actually, the dividing of the bread and fish. And it's always been a little disappointing to me that there's not more information. None of the Gospels have it. I'm like, what exactly happened? You know, did did you pull off a piece of bread and there's more bread there? Is it a a, a duplication charm from Harry Potter? Like, what actually, like, makes there be more bread? Um, I think we're going to have to embrace some mystery or or use our imagination here. Um, But it will be one of the first questions I ask Jesus when I meet him uh, face to face. Um, What it does tell us is that They left no bread wasted and they gathered up 12 baskets. Uh, 12 baskets of of bread was left over. And I I think that's an awfully convenient number. It's an awfully convenient considering there were 12 disciples. And you can use your imagination and, and envision each disciple kind of walking away from this event with a basket full of miracle bread and just pondering what they just saw. And it reinforces this idea that this miracle was, yes, it fed a hungry crowd, but it also was aimed at pushing and growing the disciples' faith. Now the crowd, they're getting a little rambunctious at this point. They're enthused by this miracle. They were ready to force him to be king. And this causes Jesus to retreat again to be alone on the mountain because their vision of what a king is and what a king is going to do is different and does not align with Jesus' vision. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, So that takes us into our second miracle, which we're going to read in its entirety in John verses 16 through 24. So read along with me in these verses. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with His disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some of the boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor His disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. All right truth be told, I could spend a lot of time here. <laughs> this I, One of my first ever sermons was just on this particular miracle. And so it's killing me to do this, you know, like in brief. But I want to pull out three quick points as we move through this. The first thing I want you to notice is according to the other accounts, if you read the other gospel writers, what they will tell you is that Jesus is the one who actually tells them to go out on the lake. Because this doesn't make sense for them to go out on their lo- alone. Like, it reads like they're very dumb. You know, they, they go out sailing on a stormy lake at night without Jesus. Come on, guys. It, it doesn't take a, ge- a genius to know that this is going to be a bad plan. But when you take in the other gospel writers, it says that Jesus is the one who sent them out on the lake. So what we see here is, why does He do this? Again, throughout this chapter, He's setting up a teachable moment to grow His disciples' faith. He's trying to push them in their faith. In fact, unlike pretty much every other miracle, the disciples are the only witnesses to this. You know, the the crowd that kind of like... They do their little search party, and they're looking for for Jesus all over the place. They can sort of infer that something strange happened. Hey, Jesus wasn't on that boat that left, and there was only one boat, so like, help us make sense of this. But they don't actually see Jesus walking on water. That miracle was reserved for the disciples in the boat. It's interesting. Okay, my second quick point on this is that John has already established that we should view this passage, verse six or chapter six, with our Exodus glasses on. I don't know about you guys. Um, I grew up uh, in the air, air, age of 3D glasses, like not the cool ones that you get at like movie theaters now, but like the paper ones that are like blue and red. And occasionally, you'd watch a 3D show or movie, and it, you'd see like a thing that says, "Put your 3D glasses on now," and you would put them on and Whoa, it's coming right at you. And I feel like John at different times, especially when he mentions like the Passover, he's, he's kind of telling us, put your 3D glasses on. But it's like, put your Exodus glasses on right now. So Moses leads his people through the sea. He parts the sea. Well, God parts the sea, but Moses leads them through it. And here we see Jesus walking over the sea. And in a lot of cases, the correlation between the works of Moses and the works of Jesus, there's a lot of um, instances where we see them compared to each other in the Bible. And what we see in every case is that Jesus is a better, more complete, more fulfilled Moses. Because Moses follows God and Jesus is God. And this point is made, and it's kind of the third thing I wanted to point out in this little section here, this point's made even clearer by what Jesus says. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. And the phrase he uses for it is I is Greek. It's ego, imē," And it's the same phrase for I am. And we see that phrase in the Old Testament when when they ask God what his name is, and he says, I am. And when Jesus says ego, I may, later in in chapter 8, He'll say it in front of a group of Pharisees and it enrages them. They say, how dare he say the same thing God says? How dare he use the phrase God uses? He's comparing himself to God. He's saying he is God. He says, ego, I may. And that's the phrase he used here. He says, I am. And then his next sentence is, do not be afraid. And what's interesting here is, you know, it does not talk about the disciples being afraid before they saw Jesus. When they're in the boat and it's storming, they don't, it does not say that they're afraid. And I would imagine that a lot of these guys are fishers. They probably knew this lake pretty well. It's known for being turbulent. That while it was not a great experience for them, some of them might have been familiar with this, this sort of um, sailing experience. It says they were afraid when they saw Jesus. When they saw Jesus and they saw the power that he was coming, this power of God, of someone walking on water, something that a person doesn't do, it struck them with fear. And God's power, if it is separated from his compassion, would be terrifying. But when we see Jesus reach out and tell them, do not be afraid, what he's telling us is that, his power and his compassion cannot be separated. You know, fear, it, it's such an enemy because it kills adoration, it kills creativity, it kills wonder, it kills imagination. My son, um, you know, occasionally you'll have like in-home crises, the dog runs away, um, you know, something like that, and, and, and people start to panic. And one of the things that my, my son, you know, he might start to panic. And what I've been trying to tell him is like, I get it. I get that like right now fear is sort of gripping you. But what I need you to do, I need you to, to calm down because you can't solve a problem when you're gripped by fear. Your creativity is gone. Your imagination is gone. And Jesus wants his people to know that in his presence, with his power, they are secure. In fact, it is the only secure place in the turbulent storm that is our world. So Jesus, he doesn't, want us to like, he doesn't want us to run away. He doesn't want us to hide our fear. A man that flies from his fear may find that he has only taken a shortcut to meet it. What Jesus wants us to see is that with him, our fears are unfounded. We're going to continue on. We'll move on to verse 25 uh, through 27, and then we're going to put, skip down to, to 35 here. So when they found him, they being the crowd, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils But for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then down to 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So for the second time, this crowd, they hunt Jesus down. But this time, Jesus comes across a little less welcoming. At least, I mean, it's hard to understand tone, and we've talked about that before up here. Like when you're reading, you kind of put your own tone sometimes onto the, onto the Scripture. It's hard to know what kind of tone he has, but it's, it just doesn't feel quite as welcoming. Um, his response was, you really only want me because I fed you. And it can come across as a little snippy, depending on what tone you read it with. Where's that battalion of compassion? Well, perhaps this analogy will help. Um, over the last couple weeks, I have been interviewing candidates for an open position on my team at work, and I, um, I really like the interviewing process. I like meeting people, uh, I like talking to people, I like, um, you know, I try to... Engage in small talk. You know, I try to get to know the person a little bit before we dive into the, the meat of the interview. Um, I try to smile a lot. I try to you know make bad jokes just to you know. <laughs> of course, I would make good jokes, but I want to I want to put them at at, at ease. Um, so, uh, and eventually, okay, I, I will get down to the questions. And I'm this is a technical position that I'm hiring for, so I'll, I'll ask them some technical questions. Now, regardless of how they answer my questions, um, even if their response is something that, like, I would consider wrong, um, I usually just try to kind of give them a positive response in that moment. And, you know, wow, I never thought of that, you know, or that's a really creative solution, you know. (laughs) It's not my job as the interviewer to educate them at that point. Um, My goal isn't to correct them. My goal is to sort of understand what they know. Would you be a good fit? Can you do what I'm asking you? To do here. That's my role. It kind of kills me on some level because I do want to like take them aside. But again, my role is a little different. Um, even in the cases, you know, it's it's hard. Sometimes within five minutes, you know, I, this person there's no way of getting this job, and we've got another forty minutes in this interview. <laughs> but what I'll do is I'll continue to look for ways to try to make at least let them have a positive experience. At least let them like be like, I might not have done great at that job, but. I enjoyed that conversation. Um, Now, is that great on my part? Maybe not. Maybe I should be more constructive. Um, But now, pretend I wasn't an interviewer, but pretend I was their mentor, like a a professional mentor, and pretend this was like a mock interview where they were practicing interviewing to get experience so they could go out and talk to people like me and really wow us. If this was the mock interview, would that smile and nod approach be appropriate? Would it be right for the mentor just to kind of like pat them on the back without giving them any honest criticism? Just letting them go into these interviews completely unqualified and completely unprepared? Is that, would that be good? Is that being compassionate? I mean, true compassion provides positive action to people in times of need. So, Jesus wants to be more than just your mentor. What's his responsibility to you then in this case? The crowd is impressed with his power and they want to make him king, but do they know him? Do they know his identity? Do they know who he is? Do they know why he's here? Do they understand his purpose? Should he not push them a bit towards understanding? Jesus, he's essentially asking them, hey, why are you here? What, do you, what did you come to see? What do you want? Do you want more food? Do you want food security? Do you want free health care? Do you want a leader for your cause? Do you want to get your land back? What do you want? Those aren't bad things. But what if I told you that you could have something better. In Greek, there are two words for life. We have one word, life, and we use it in two ways. Sometimes when people talk about life, they talk about life like um, like breathing and heartbeat, like a biological life. That's the Greek word bios. All right? Another way people use life is more like, hey, he's the life of the party. Or, you know what? This is the life. That phrase is in Greek is called Zoe. If you know anybody named Zoe, now you know the meaning of their name. Um, Zoe is the quality of life. It's something that makes life worth living. And the word that John is using here is not bios, it's Zoe. Meaning that Jesus is not offering people eternal biological life. Truth be told, eternal biological life will be a lot closer to hell than heaven. I mean, if you ever watch movies where someone gains immortality, you know, it's always the, the theme that they, they grow weary and they, you know, they get tired of seeing their loved ones die around them and the world rot around them. It's always, it's always bad. That's not what Jesus is offering. He's offering Zoe. It is the abundant quality of life beyond what we can imagine. And so what, what Jesus is getting at here is not that we want too much. He's not mad that they, ha, that they enjoyed the bread. It's that they want too little, that we want too little. We want bread. We want success. We want respect. We want fitness. We want wine. We want companionship, wealth, and a million other things. And some of those are good and some of those are bad. But Jesus just doesn't want to give us bios, He wants to give us Zoe. All those biases, they will spoil, they will die, they will fade away. It's bread that fills for a moment, but leaves us hungry again. Zoe, the life that Jesus wants to give us, is something eternal, something that cannot be tarnished, something that cannot be taken away. And that thing he calls the bread of life, which is himself. So, let's ask ourselves the question that Jesus is essentially asking the crowd. What are you here for? Like, why did you come to church this morning? Like, what got you out of bed? Not literally your alarm clock or brought you here, your car. But like, why are you here? Why are you sitting here? Why put up with me talking? Like, what's the point? What do you want? What are you hoping to receive? You know, some of us were dragged here, you know, by a parent, by a spouse, a friend maybe. Some of us are checking our boxes. We'll feel guilty. We know we'll feel guilty if we didn't come. So we come. Some of us are here looking for inspiration. Some people are here because it's socially expected. This is my friend group. These are my peers. If I don't come, there will be questions. For some of us, it was our week to preach. (laughs) And some people came because it's Sunday and that's simply what you do on Sunday. Like, why are you here? What do you want? The good news is that Jesus offers us more than we could hope for ourselves. When we accept Jesus, the bread of life, all those other things, all those bioses, all those snacks, good or ill, they lose their, their hold over us, and we become nourished with the, with the thing that we're designed for. We were designed to run on the bread of life, all right? A car is designed to run on gas. You are designed to run on the bread of life. That is the power source you were built for. So how do we receive it? How do we get this bread? Jesus, please give us this bread always. We're going to read about this, how he tells us to receive it next. I do want to prepare you a bit. I think Jesus is going to push into our faith a little bit. That's kind of one of the themes of the sermon, is Jesus pushing his willingness to test you. This is a hard passage, perhaps one of the harder passages in the New Testament. Um, So we're going to read starting in verse 51, and I will jump around just a bit. It says, Jesus tells them, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Upon hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does that offend you? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, Thanks get? for listening. Learn more about our church our and support by giving to, to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.: All right, this is like astonishing, because Jesus starts in chapter six, so popular that he can't escape a crowd of thousands. And when he does escape, they just find him again. He's got so many people falling around, they're, press, they're pressing him in, on, pressing in on him. And by the end, he's got 12. I mean, this is real, like, how not to start a following 101. If you were Jesus PR guy, you'd be like, listen, the stuff about eating flesh and and drinking blood is testing really poorly with our target markets, okay? We're going to focus in on, like, giving people bread. They seem to like that, all right? And let's just be honest. If anybody other than Jesus said this we would be disgusted and we would walk away, right? If we didn't know the Jesus that we've come to know through the New Testament from preaching, from however you've kind of gotten to know Jesus, this would be awful. This would be disgusting, right? This would be too much. All of us would go, yeah, you know what? At this point, I'm out. At least I hope you would. But we are in a privileged time, We do know more of the story of the New Testament. We do know more of where Jesus is going. We've read about the Last Supper. We get to read more writing of the New Testament authors. And we know that this provocative command is the foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. And that's an act that we celebrate every week here when we take communion. And when we take communion... You know, we're called to like ingest, in, bring into ourselves bread and wine or juice. And this represents Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood. And we bring it into ourselves, and by doing so, it's it's really an, an act of surrender. Um, the 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 churchy word for like bread and wine, is they you know, in communion, they call that the elements. Um, and there's arguments among different church denominations on sort of the nature of these elements, you know. And there's some mystery about the act of taking communion. It's, there, it, it seems like it's more than just coming up and taking a piece of bread and dipping it in a piece of wine or juice. There's some mysterious elements to it. But there's no mystery about the purpose. And that purpose is to foster an attitude of repentance within us. When we come up and we take communion, which we're going to do here in just a moment, when we come up and take communion, our posture should be of someone that we, you, I, something that we need more than anything else in the world. When you come up and take communion, do you think of it in that way? We have to recognize the sin that we have in our lives, the, the lesser breads that we chase, the things that we elevate above God. And we have to ask Jesus to give us this bread of life because we need Jesus to stand in for our imperfect life. We need his perfect life to stand in for our imperfect life. And we need his death, his sacrificial death, which he achieved on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. So, as we take communion today, I want you to ask yourself is there anything that you need more in life than Jesus right now? Now, if you're not a believer and you're here visiting, or um, you're just, you know this sort of relationship with Jesus, this surrender, this repentant posture that we're encouraging you to take when you come up and take communion, if that's not where you're at, if that's not what you want right now, um, we want to say, well, thank you for coming, and we hope you feel welcome here. Um, We would encourage you to maybe reflect upon what obstacles... What things are maybe keeping you from pursuing this bread of life? Do you have questions that are unanswered? Do you have events in your life that are just too hard for you to deal with and you kind of struggle to relate them you know, to what you read in the Bible or what we're preaching up about here? Do you need to talk with someone? There are always pastors in this room over here that would love to talk with you. They'll be happy to pray with you. I'm sure there are community group leaders and friends who would also pick up that responsibility. Ask your questions. We'd love to have that conversation. Um, it's something that's interesting as we, read, as we kind of wind down toward the end in, in chapter 6. And Jesus doesn't tell his disciples. He doesn't give them the answer. You know, it would be a little more comforting if, the, if, if chapter 6 had one more verse And said, Jesus told his disciples, hey, I'm actually foreshadowing communion. Like, don't be too grossed out here. I'm not going to make you bite me. Um, Jesus is okay with people wrestling with hard teaching. Jesus wants to push you. Jesus wants to grow your faith. And he's okay letting you wrestle a little bit. Peter, who answers for the disciples... He doesn't display a real understanding of of what what Jesus means through all this. His response is more like a surrender. His response is, you're God and we're not. Where else would we go? When you look at this and you believe that you have a powerful and compassionate God, that you, have, that you believe in a God that can do more than you can imagine with less than you would think possible. When you have a God who is actively working and pushing and testing and growing you for your own good, then you too, like Peter, can surrender with the expectation that God is going to do something new, good, and wonderful. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are a God who's willing to test us and grow us and that you don't pull your punches. But out of love, you'll meet us where we're at and maybe push us a little further than we thought we could go. And I pray that I and everybody in here would look for those opportunities to redirect whatever little resources we have, the five bread pieces of bread and the two fish in our, in our hands and hand them to you, Lord, and say, God, do something great with this. Lord, give us a mind and an imagination that sees these things, these meager resources, as brimming with power if we just get them into the right hands. And those hands would be yours, God, and I pray that you would... Continue to teach us and grow us. Ultimately, Lord, as we take communion, I pray that we remember that this is an act of surrender and this is going to lead us into repentance and that we're going to see that the things that we think will fill us up, the lesser breads, um, Lord, that they are not worthy. They are not um, capable. Um, Help us to chase after you instead. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Amen.